Welcome to the Global Governance Podcast, where we explore the future of governance. Each episode will look at a different global issue and how governance plays a key role in its solution. From climate change to gender equality, from corruption to peace and security, we invite experts to explore a thought-provoking game of what if and why not, positing a world in much closer international cooperation. And now your host, Augusto Lopez Claros. Enjoy. A kleptocracy is a form of government in which the leaders use their power to steal money and resources from the country that they rule. In many countries around the world, this type of mass corruption goes almost completely unchallenged. But what if it didn't? What if in the not-too-distant future, there was a high court tasked with prosecuting the kleptocrats of the world in the same way the International Criminal Court prosecutes crimes against humanity. Today, we're going to explore what that future might look like with my guest, the Honorable Judge Mark Wolf. Mark is a senior district judge in the United States for the District of Massachusetts, He has long advocated for an international anti-corruption court to root out corruption at the highest levels. A graduate of Harvard Law School, he teaches a seminar at the Kennedy School on strengthening the enforcement of criminal laws against kleptocrats. He has spoken often on the role of the judge in a democracy, human rights issues, and combating corruption in foreign countries, including Russia, Ukraine, China, Turkey, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Egypt, Cyprus, Panama, Mexico, Italy, and others. Mark, welcome uh, for joining us in a podcast of the Global Governance Forum. And the first question which I would like to pose is if you could tell us a little bit about how you made the journey from Harvard Law School to being a senior uh, U.S. district judge. Well, thank you. Uh, and, and that journey is, is very relevant to uh, the concept of the International Anti-Corruption Court. So when I was a young lawyer in Washington in, in 1974, I became first an assistant to the Deputy Attorney General of the United States at the end of the Nixon administration for several months, and then for two years for the very uh, honorable and able Attorney General in the administration of President Gerald Ford, Edward Levy, who was brought to the Department of Justice to uh, restore confidence in an agency that was discredited because it had been abused uh, for partisan purposes uh, by President Nixon and his attorney general, who was also his campaign manager, John Mitchell, who eventually went to prison. And so when I was about 28, 29, 30 years old, I was working on issues of how in the United States we hold the highest officials accountable. In the early 1980s, I was the deputy United States attorney in Massachusetts, the number two person in the United States attorney's office, and the chief of the public corruption unit. And in about four years uh, in Massachusetts at that time, corruption had been found to be a way of life in public contracting. It was also a way of life in private contracting. Bribes had to be paid to 
develop uh, all the buildings I'm seeing looking out my window past uh, the screen. And after my colleagues and I uh, won more than 40 consecutive corruption cases, uh, I uh, was appointed a United States district judge, one of about 750 trial federal trial judges in the United States. And in the uh, 35 years I've been a judge, uh, two relevant things have occurred. I've had some cases that have exposed great corruption. I had one particularly in the late 1990s where I conducted nine months of hearings, wrote a 661-page decision, and discerned and described uh, enormous corruption between the Federal Bureau of Investigation and its, and its top echelon organized crime informants, including James Whitey Bulger, whose brother was the president of the state Senate. And in 2011, I uh, uh, presided over the trial of the former Speaker of the House of Representatives, our parliament, uh, a man named Sal DeMacy, who had extorted uh, uh, bribes in connection with $20 million worth of uh, government contracts. Uh, at the same time, after I became a judge, uh, increasingly, particularly after 2010 increasingly, I was speaking around the world uh, about uh, the role of a judge in democracy, human rights issues, and how to combat corruption. And I was struck by the fact that uh, uh, grand corruption, the abuse of public office for private gain by a nation's leaders, uh, thrived and thrived for decades in many countries. Uh, and it wasn't because of a lack of laws. It was because uh, those kleptocrats controlled the police, the prosecutors, and usually the courts, uh, and they wouldn't permit the investigation, prosecution, and punishment of themselves, their friends, uh, their criminal collaborators. So it occurred to me that what the world needed was the counterpart to the federal courts in the United States, uh, an international anti-corruption court to hold kleptocrats accountable and diminish the enormous abuses of human rights uh, for which they're responsible. Uh, but, uh, if, if a country was unwilling or unable uh, to do it themselves. I have had an interest in corruption as a from the perspective of an economist uh, working for international organizations like the IMF and the World Bank. And, you know, in, in, in the academic community and within the context of multilateral development organizations, we have developed a literature. Uh, we have done research about, you know, the multiple adverse economic consequences of corruption. Um, it reduces government revenue, it undermines economic growth, it sabotages private sector development, it adds uncertainty, um, it leads to other forms of crime as well. Um, it, it, it just doesn't stay in, in, the, in, the, in the disguise of bribery and, and, and so on. Um, one question which I'd like to ask, because you, you mentioned uh, speaking about democracy around the world, does corruption, in fact, also undermine the basis of democracy? Totally undermines democracy. It's 
utterly inconsistent with it. Democracy is the rule of law, most fundamentally. It's government pursuant to the rule of law. And no country has laws authorizing uh, bribery, extortion, money laundering, misappropriation of national resources. So it, it's utterly inconsistent with it. In addition, for grand corruption to persist, the democratic process has to be corrupted. Uh, the organizations that pay bribes to get public contracts also illegally finance uh, the campaigns of the kleptocrats to keep them in office so they can continue to profit. And to, again, revert to my experience, uh, this was uh, one of the elements of Watergate uh, in the genesis of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act because IT&T, which was bribing people around the world, was also making illegal campaign contributions uh, to President Nixon, who instructed his Department of Justice not to pursue IT&T. Would you agree with the statement, maybe somewhat subjective, but if you take a kind of a long-term perspective on corruption, if you look at its evolution over the last 30, 40 years, that it is... Uh, a, a worse problem today than it was 20, 30 year ago, years ago, that it has been become more pervasive, it has affected more countries, it is, it is leading to more instability and dissatisfaction uh, around the world? Or is that just a, a, a perception which perhaps is, is not, not on target? Well, I'd say two things. One, I share that perception. Uh, I think the corruptions at a grander scale probably than it's ever been. And I think that it almost doesn't matter whether it's much greater or comparable to what it was 30 years ago. It's at an intolerable level. I think what's increasingly be being understood, going beyond the dollars, is the fact that these kleptocrats are the worst abusers of human rights. They, they, they shamelessly rob their countries uh, of money uh, that is needed for the health and welfare uh, for, for their citizens to stay alive. Uh, I often talk about uh, Angola, which had President Eduardo de Santos for 38 years as the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists has recently uh, brilliantly further exposed. He made his daughter Isabel, the richest woman in Africa, worth said to be worth $2 billion. And at the same time, uh, Angola has the highest percentage of children who don't live to the age of five of any country in the world. So I think as uh, the means of people getting information has increased and investigative journalism has increased. Uh, there, there's more indignation. And I think you've said something very important. These are not, this grand corruption is not a domestic problem. It, it, the, first of all, the money, as you well know, uh, travels. Kleptocrats don't want to keep their money in their own country. Uh, they launder the money uh, uh, to 
through Switzerland and other places, and they have property in London and New York and Palm Beach. Uh, but it's not a domestic uh, problem. Indignation at grand corruption is uh, toppling kleptocrats around the world. I would say most vividly in Ukraine, where young people especially uh, drove uh, Yanukovych out, largely because of his extravagant, obvious corruption. And he goes to Russia, and Russia invades Crimea, and that injures the ability of the European Union and the United States to work with Russia on many important problems on uh, Syria and uh, Iran, for example. So uh, I think there's been an awareness that uh, grand corruption is not a domestic problem and it needs a global solution. So it mutates and becomes a political problem with multiple other ramifications that may have a security dimension as well. It doesn't, it doesn't just remain as an issue of bribery and corruption. Yes, that, I, I think that's absolutely evident. Um, tell us a little bit about integrity um, um, uh, in initiatives international. Um, uh, it, it seems to me that your interest in, in, in corruption and the desire to do something about it has led to this sort of institutional initiative. And, and I would like us to tell to, to tell you, tell our, our, our listeners a little about, about this or, uh, interesting organization. Um, uh, and in particular, we're especially interested in, in learning how you're going about uh, creating a coalition of supporters. How can people like myself and others uh, who have an interest in issues of corruption support the work of this organization and help you? Integrity Initiatives International, or Triple I as we often call it, uh, was created in 2016. Uh, I published two articles in 2014 advocating the creation of the International Anti-Corruption Court and was hearing from people around the world and uh, offered opportunities to speak for it around, about it around the world as well as in the United States Congress and State Department. So Justice Richard Goldstone of South Africa, the first prosecutor for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, and, uh, for example, Jeffrey Cowan, the head of Voice of America and the uh, Clinton administration and other colleagues and I uh, formed I. The mission of I is to strengthen the enforcement of criminal laws against kleptocrats because it appeared to me really as an amateur that this wasn't being discussed much by anybody but there's no organization that had this mission. And Triple-I essentially has four components uh, of its activities, although they're all organic. Uh, we uh, work to strengthen national efforts to combat corruption. We've been very involved with the creation and the staffing of the National Special Anti-Corruption Court in Ukraine. We seek to promote understanding and greater collaboration uh, between human rights organizations and uh, anti-corruption organizations, since they're really both focused on the same people. We aim to forge a network or network 
of networks of young people dedicated to combating corruption in their own countries and around the world. And uh, our primary activity, and particularly during the pandemic, has been to try to catalyze the creation of the International Anti-Corruption Court. Uh, in connection with that, uh, Colombia uh, was among the countries that called on the UN to convene a special session of the General Assembly in uh, 2021 against corruption and has urged the General Assembly to advance the idea of creating the International Anti-Corruption Court. Uh, other countries in varying degrees have uh, supported that. For example, Peru, uh, there's great interest in this in Canada and uh, in many other countries. The, 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 or, the, the concept has been endorsed by many NGOs, the Century, Global Witness, uh, many chapters of Transparency International around the world, for example, and courageous young people, including leaders of the Euromaidan uh, Revolution of Dignity. Uh, but it's still not a sufficiently uh, formal, informidable coalition that's campaigning. And if interested individuals were to go to the website of Integrity Initiatives International, they could learn more about this. Uh, they could email me at Mark. Dot wolf w o l f at integrityinitiatives.org uh, and uh, we would be greatly gratified to engage them in this vital effort mark um in thinking about some of the more successful initiatives of international cooperation over the last 20 years um i can think of you know the 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 international criminal court the campaign to ban landmines. Um, and of course, in 2017, the International Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And all of these initiatives began ultimately with, with, you know, drafting some kind of sort of document, a, a draft treaty for which then there was an effort to obtain the endorsement of of, you know, a few well-meaning countries, you know, Norway, Canada, New Zealand, you know, there is a, a, a dozen or so countries that have, over the last 20 years, led this international effort for new initiatives. Is this something that you would give consideration to in, in the, in the next, uh, in the next, uh, you know, few years as part of formalizing a process whereby the International Anti-Corruption Court could be set up? Absolutely. Uh, and we're, not waiting a few years to try to catalyze that. Uh, there are various uh, efforts, one led by a member of IIII's board, Camillo and CISO, former secretary of transparency under President Juan Manuel Santos in Colombia. And President Santos is, an, he proudly made Colombia years ago the first country to endorse the court. Um, you mentioned the landmine ban treaty, and as you know, indispensable to getting that treaty was the then Foreign Minister of Canada, Lloyd Axworthy. Uh, he is now the chair of the uh, World Refugee and Migration Council. He's become an ardent advocate of the International Anti-Corruption Court. 
along with his colleague, Alan Rock, the former Minister of Justice and Canadian ambassador to the UN. And they're leading a bipartisan effort to get Canada to take a leading role. But there'll be a meeting uh, next spring. It had to be deferred because of the pandemic at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences to further develop this. And in the interim, uh, we expect to soon have a declaration. It's not a treaty, uh, but a document uh, that countries and organizations and individuals can sign that would accelerate the process of getting that document that you described. One of the comments that sometimes one hears from people who are um, not happy with uh, multilateral initiatives or attempts to bring nations together to, to deal with global problems is the issue of, uh, you know, the cost of establishing, you know, another, another, another body. Um, I have a friend who has strong associations with the International Criminal Court, and one hears some of the larger countries who are not strong supporters of the, of the court, always talking about the cost of, of, of running this operation. And it seems to me that when you compare the benefits, the potential benefits of this against the cost of corruption, uh, I would hope that that issue would never arise, but I wouldn't be so sure if, if uh, this initiative will not have its detractors. Do you see a, a group of people uh, uh, perhaps not being enthusiastic, a, a group of countries not being enthusiastic about this initiative? Well, there, there, are, there are many countries that are not enthusiastic about the initiative, and it, it's disappointing to me that they don't deal with it uh, publicly but covertly uh, undermine the effort to advance the International Anti-Corruption Court because they're led by kleptocrats. Uh, on the discrete issue you raised, you're right. Uh, the International Criminal Court costs about $165 million a year. Trillions are lost to grand corruption. Uh, and, uh, you know, a, a meaningful deterrent even uh, would survive uh, beautifully any cost-benefit analysis. But there's an advantage the International Anti-Corruption Court will have over the International Criminal Court. It will uh, not just impose prison sentences on kleptocrats, it will uh, be able to freeze and eventually substantially repatriate uh, their illicit gains, and this is done in the United States. It's not well understood. Part of a criminal sentence can be a fine. And part of fines that are imposed in the United States finance the United States courts. Um, so ultimately, when the court is operating successfully, uh, it should finance, it will finance itself. In addition, the International Anti-Corruption Court could be given jurisdiction over the counterpart to False Claims Act uh, cases in the United States. These are civil, not criminal cases. They're brought by private whistleblowers in the United, the United States. Uh, the government, the Department of Justice can step in and represent them. But if they don't, uh, the whistleblowers prosecute the cases themselves. And in either event, if the case is won or settled, the whistleblowers get money. But the United States government has recovered billions of dollars 
uh, as a result of fraud and corruption cases brought by private whistleblowers. And again, this would be a way of recovering assets that the victimized countries and their citizens desperately need, and also of financing the court. I'm thinking, um, you know, in 2020, we have been commemorating the 75th anniversary of the United Nations Charter. And, um, you know, there have been a whole uh, range of activities uh, and uh, and events um, and a lot of soul searching about, you know, the kind of United Nations that we would want, uh, uh, you know, in the future. And one of the issues that has that has been touched upon is the whole question of resources. You know, the United Nations op- operates on a on a very very flimsy, uh, very unreliable budget, uh, uh, which essentially limits in many ways what it can do on climate change mitigation, on multiple other challenges that we face globally. And it seems to me that um, tapping into um, uh, you know, ill, ill-gotten gains, stolen assets, and other kinds of malfeasance, you know, could be one way in which one could strengthen the financial base of organizations like the United Nations and other multilateral bodies that very often work on very strained budgets. That is true. Uh, and I think eventually uh, that uh, could be a result of an international anti-corruption court Although I, I will say that uh, in, perhaps because it's so dependent on funding from countries that oppose any kind of international accountability, I, I would say that the UN's record with regard uh, to combating corruption, particularly grand corruption, is mixed. Uh, I think the UN Convention Against Corruption uh, was a milestone in a promising one because grand corruption doesn't exist because of a lack of laws. 187 countries are parties to the UN Convention Against Corruption, and they all have an obligation to enforce the laws it requires, criminalizing bribery and extortion and money laundering, misappropriation of national resources against their nation's leaders. But they don't, as I said, because those leaders control the administration of justice. And in my experience, and not just my experience, uh, the UNCAC community, the United Nations, has been excessively focused on whether countries have the right laws on the books and have not done nearly enough to try to assure that they're implemented. And in fact, sometimes uh, some of the worst abusers, countries that are the worst, uh, the most corrupt, and most corrupt at the top, end up uh, hosting uh, uh, UNCAC events as if they should be treated as honored members of the international anti-corruption community. I had an experience in Russia in 2013 that delivered this insight to me powerfully. How to guard against some of the some of the criticism that sometimes. Uh, uh, some countries have directed to the International Criminal Court uh, uh, that the court um, has become a bit of a bully pulpit for the for the world superpowers going after you know poor countries in Africa and and in the developing world. Um, 
how how would we avoid that particular quandary in the International Anti-Corruption Court? You know, there have been uh, almost, but not, well, almost exclusively prosecutions of Africans, but uh, in the International Criminal Court, but uh, more countries in Africa join than from any other region, and there's a lot of corruption in Africa, there's a lot of human rights abuses in Africa, and uh, some of those cases were initiated at the request of the countries affected. I think, though, the International Anti-Corruption Court, uh, grand corruption is endemic. It's not just in Africa. It's not just in Latin America. It's everywhere. Mark, this has been a fascinating discussion, and I want to thank you on behalf of the Global Governance Forum for, for casting so much interesting light based on your enormous practical experience. I mean, your your career and your eventual arrival into being an advocate for an international initiative, you know, is a fascinating story. And, and we, we wish you well in this undertaking and we look forward to collaborating with you in the future. Uh, for those of us, gro- few but growing number of us who understand the importance of what we're talking about today, that we start talking about not you and I, but we, because it is this collaboration that's going to be the key to progress. And uh, what you and your colleagues uh, bring to this space uh, is, is vitally needed and much appreciated. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Global Governance Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. To learn more, please visit globalgovernanceforum.org and join the conversation. 